1: Go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code listen at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code listen.
0: Hi,
2: this is Marion Bartoli.
0: I'm Mats Vilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka.
1: I'm Lightning Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to the tennis podcast day 11 of Wimbledon relived what would have been women's semi-finals day at Wimbledon and would probably have been under the roof because looking out of my window in Putney which is a mere mile mile and a half-ish down the road from SW19 is blooming miserable so that's great. Thank you British weather for making summer 2020 just that little bit extra great um but not to worry because uh, i've got david and matt to talk tennis with and it's our 700th episode david you just told me we actually can mark a milestone because we've remembered it before recording rather than four seconds after recording <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah we, we've celebrated 501 and 601 uh in the past um so yeah i'm feeling quite proud you know it it jars me when you say it's women's semi-finals day today because I'd kind of I'd forgotten that in as much as I'm so used to now talking about classic matches with you both watching them we've just watched another one to what I mean the BBC have got matches on every day that they're showing Wimbledon are doing their own stuff online streaming matches which you know is the one good thing I take from this whole period is that suddenly this vast archive is just being put out there for everybody to enjoy. But I, don't, I had actually forgotten that it is still Wimbledon and that today would have been Women's Semi-Finals Day and that makes me quite sad, yeah.
2: I wish I wish I could forget. I get the impression, Matt, that perhaps you haven't forgotten in the optimistic, uh, um, every cloud, silver lining way that, that David
0: has. I don't know, I kind of have in a way. I'm just no. so, so invested in what we're doing that, the usual schedule of Wimbledon isn't isn't really in my mind so much
2: just me then okay <laughs> um, t- today we're taking a trip back to 2005 when uh Lance Armstrong was winning his seventh consecutive Tour de France title um Yep. Uh, the A380 made its first flight. Uh, the Live 8 concerts were held. A good friend of mine went to uh, Live 8 in Hyde Park and she says it was mostly great until Sting came on early evening when everyone was pissed and in party mode and sung new material.
3: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Do you know Live 8 is when I discovered Pink Floyd? And realized I like the year it. 2005, 2005. David
2: Law discovered Pink <laughs> yeah. Floyd,
3: yeah. And Matt's now, uh, just sort of got me to, to realize that I actually need to listen to albums full of Bruce Springsteen and not just judge him on We Are the World <laughs> and Born in the USA. Correct,
2: correct. Get on that, David. Uh, It was also the year that Britain implemented the Civil Partnerships Act to include same-sex partnerships. It was the year that London won the rights to host the 2012 Olympics and the Xbox 360 was released. Oh, and Pope John Paul II died. I, I there's a few we've already done a two thousand and five match at the French Open, so those are those are events that we didn't mention first time around. So that was two thousand and five. I was working my first Wimbledon as an employee. I was a ball store assistant under the employee of one Derek Dimmer, who was the head of the ball store at Wimbledon and had done that job with his wife for what, centuries, I think. <laughs> um, it was in, it, it was a job um, which largely comprised heavy lifting and I loved it. I couldn't believe my luck that I was working at Wimbledon, even though my primary job was lifting boxes of tennis balls and wandering around the Orangi practice courts with a bin bag asking players and coaches if I could collect their used balls after practice so they could be resold to charity. I thought that was the best job in the world. And I could not believe my luck. And I went back the next year as as head ball store assistant.
0: I was going to say and, you were you were <laughs> soon to be promoted.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, that was my first promotion, and and that
0: I was,
3: was going to ask if you did a good job and with you know whether you got a good review. Turns out you did. Turns
2: out I did. I mean, there's not there's only so much that can go wrong with putting balls in a bin bag, um, but it didn't go wrong. And honestly, I just I thought asking asking Tim Henman if he was finished with his tennis balls. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I thought I was the coolest person in the world for getting to do that job. So I think I watched this women's final, certainly followed it from the Orangi practice courts, from what I can remember. I'm not sure I was able to sit and watch the whole thing because had very important duties to be, be carrying out. <laughs> um, but I was certainly at Wimbledon at the time and remembered the the building atmosphere is the match progressed and a, and a feeling spreading around the grounds of this is a special one here. This is a a special final that's, that's developing. You were at Wimbledon as well, David.
3: Yeah, I, I think I would have been doing not flash interviews, but interviews on the sort of player lawn that they have this area that all the players and their families and their entourages congregate between matches. And When you get to that final weekend, it's a pretty deserted place because there just aren't many players left. You've got the doubles teams that are left in the finals, the mixed doubles teams, the the wheelchair players, the juniors, and uh, a couple of singles finalists. And yes, a lot of people around them because they're, a lot of people will fly in. You've got a lot of celebrities milling around um, that that come for the big occasion. Um, and yeah, my job would have been to, to get reaction, to try to doorstep people. And I, and I do quite like doorstepping people. It's quite good fun uh, for live interviews. Although occasionally you can go up and say, yeah, come to me live now. I can see so-and-so. I'm just about to go and ask them. And you, you ask them and they say, no, I don't think so. Don't don't <laughs> want to speak to you, uh, which, which doesn't go down so well. But in terms of... Of Because of that, I don't remember actually watching this tennis match because I couldn't see it anywhere. I'm just outside on a lawn. I would have been listening to the commentary on BBC Radio as I'm waiting to go live if I get somebody to speak to. But it's been one of the real joys of, of doing this over the last week. and so, uh, Less so at Roland Garros because I always get to watch that because I'm never working there. But these matches, the, there's a bit of a blind spot for me in this period, where I feel like I don't remember the matches that well, I don't even remember th- that many of the the statistics and the title halls and and so forth. I didn't realise there were gaps in Venus Williams's CV, for instance, which which we've discovered, unearthing all this. But what a what an absolute joy to relive that match that we've just seen! And, Fantastic. On, what
2: were the gaps in Venus Williams' CV?
3: Well. I th- hadn't she gone four years without ah, winning a grand right. slam? Right, you mean
2: uh, sort of time time gaps? Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And I, I kind of I know she's won seven major titles. I didn't realize necessarily how they were clustered, mm. uh, and there was a period where she was the dominant player in the world for a couple of years. And of course, she's won five Wimbledon's as well. But I, d- I just didn't realize there was that that lull in her in her career in terms of winning.
0: I remember this period of Venus williams's career, sort of two thousand and five to two thousand and eight, where she won three Wimbledons in four years. She was like this person who would just bloom during Wimbledon and then not be so good at the other slams. And she was always kind of elusive in that way. I I felt as someone who, you know, this is now very much in my tennis watching memory. And you know, it was just interesting how she was so good at Wimbledon, but less less dominant at the other slams, and that's something that we'll hear Lindsay Davenport talk about a bit later. But uh, yeah, I mean, 2005 is the first first Wimbledon and this is the sort of phrase that will disgust both of you especially David 2005 the first Wimbledon that I can remember and um I just remember my my teacher at primary school just putting it on at lunch break just for me to sit and watch while everyone else was outside which sounds like quite a sad scene now I tell it like that but actually I was I was really happy in those moments just just watching Wimbledon at primary school on my own that was uh that was kind of where my my love for tennis was built, I think. And yeah, th- this Wimbledon I do remember watching.
3: Have you had any of those, Catherine? Where you've you know you were you were called tennis Cathy, weren't mm-hmm. you at school? Have you have you and had anywhere you where you've sort of either sat and watched know, tennis alone? Yeah. Have, have you ever <laughs> skipped lessons? Have you years. ever have you ever found ways to watch tennis in? circumstances where (laughs) you know nobody else is doing it and it's a bit awkward but you you know you're going to do it anyway because it's that big a deal
2: yeah well after my a levels, so 2000 uh, as levels in 2003 i remember they they made us go back to school post as levels for sort of just a a, you know the the syllabus was over obviously because we'd taken our exams I remember there was like a two three week period where they made us go back to school and and it it seemed entirely pointless. So I just I I took two weeks off to watch Wimbledon. <laughs> um, and I'm I, my I don't know, I remember my parents being sort of on board with that, which was you know really enlightened parenting on reflection. I very much appreciate that. Um I remember watching the Goran Pat Patrafter 2001 final in the school's IT room um and they kept it open for me um after school finished it was it was me and a girl called Hannah Blakey <laughs> um and uh, Hannah and I were we you know we were friendly but we weren't particularly friends but we shared that moment together hello Hannah if you're listening <laughs> don't think she is <laughs> um and oh gosh yeah I mean my my teenage and university years are littered with experiences like that because my family were tennis fans, but I didn't have any friends that were tennis fans or really even particularly sports fans. I was this curiosity. You know, I remember coming into the common room one day, I think it would have been again, 2003 or 2004. And I was exhausted because I would stayed up all night watching the US Open. It had been rained off all night. And, and I, and I'd stayed up anyway, just in the hopes that some tennis would be played. And I remember my friends looking at me like I was an alien saying, you stayed up all night to watch rained off tennis. (laughs) I said, yeah, well, obviously when you put it like that, it makes me sound like a crazy person, but yes, yes, I did. It's
0: interesting how in your school and university days, you would have to miss something to watch tennis. For me, I often went to the lesson but would sort of balance my phone sort of behind, like, <laughs> on my pencil case so that the teacher couldn't see it and just have the match playing during the lesson or during the lecture or whatever it was, you know, whether if it was on BBC, you know, I could get that on my phone. And um, I, I've had several experiences where I've sort of accidentally yelled out <laughs> in the middle of a lesson because someone's just hit a brilliant passing shot or something and I, I'm sure I'm sure teachers were aware of it but I thought I was sort of getting away with it and there was this moment of sort of danger of watching tennis in a lesson and this um, is
2: like uh my uh my brother sent uh sent me a picture yesterday of his uh, home office setup yesterday was the day that um cricket returned in the UK and uh he had uh, a screen set up showing the cricket, which was exactly in line with his laptop camera, so that while watching the cricket, it would appear as if he was just paying extremely <laughs> close attention in Zoom meetings. <laughs> How many people do you think there are across the country that have got that set up going on?
3: They, they didn't have phones when I was at school. Well, that's but, what I mean. Um, yeah,
2: that's what yeah. That's what he was really gently <laughs> getting at, David. He just didn't yeah. want to...
3: <laughs> Didn't have them at university either, <laughs> uh, but I, but there was a com- a single common room where I I do remember watching uh, Pete Sampras against Jim Courier in nineteen ninety five at the Australian Open. Uh, there was another one where I I convinced a pub in Cornwall to stay open in the early hours to let me watch Greg Rusedski against Pat Rafter in the U.S. Open final, uh, and then there was the university lecturer who. I convinced to use the college video recorder to tape the 1997 match at the Royal Albert Hall between John McEnroe and, and Bjorn Borg in the first ever Champions Tour event the year before I started working on it, um, just because I wanted to watch it. Um, oh, and, and when I joined the ATP a year a year later, and I had no friends <laughs> in my first week, I I went into the office, the ATP office, at... Uh, midnight on a Sunday with an entire cooked chicken which I'd bought from a deli in the supermarket and I had nothing else just the chicken and I watched and ate and watched uh, Alex Korecha against Thomas Enquist in the Indian Wells final on my own (laughs) in the middle of the night
2: (laughs) that is the behavior of a madman (laughs)
3: <laughs> and that, those are just four examples of many, I tell you.
2: That sounds like sort of Barnaby with the swords esque behaviour.
3: <laughs> yeah, we we haven't revealed the name Barnaby to our listeners who remember the Samurai Sword Collection in Cornwall on the farm. But yes, hello, Barnaby. I wonder what he's doing. I don't doing think now. Barnaby
2: or Hannah Blakey are listening somehow. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> should they we are. Talk
3: about Lin- should we talk about Lindsay Davenport <laughs> yeah. and Venus Williams now?
2: Um, because it's. I think it's probably the the best women's final ever. Is that do you think that's safe to say? I mean it's 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 the longest, but that doesn't necessarily mean mean the best, but having just watched it back, the the persistently high level from both players, especially given the style of tennis they're both playing, which is pretty high risk tennis, um is utterly extraordinary.
0: I think it's just one of those matches which speaks for itself. Like there's no there's no sort of iconic tiebreak or Monday finish or uh, real aggro between the players. You know, it's just, it's all about, as you said, the sustained quality of the tennis from first ball to last and both women coming up with their best, best plays on the biggest points. And, you know, it just, it's just a joy to watch because the quality is just so high
3: and and yet there's all, there is also still a high wire act being performed by Venus Williams to stay in the thing uh and that, I mean that's just there's so much drama but but it's sustained and it's it it just sort of keeps going all the way through the match but you you you're right it's I can I was thinking we 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 did the Sabatini Graf match uh earlier in Wimbledon relived and I I really enjoyed that but this was this was about winners. This was about never missing. Just, just taking, taking control one to the other. Um, and so, to have a match finishing deep in the third set, an extended third set, where there's that many winners, it, I I'd agree. I can't think of a, a higher quality match that I've seen.
2: To, to fill you in on kind of the trajectory and the ebbs and flows of, of the match, it's Lindsay Davenport, who incidentally is is the top seed at this tournament she's she's the world number one at the time although that doesn't necessarily tell the full story we'll come on to more of that in a moment but Davenport is I think five one up in in the opening set uh, she's got a double break she but it and it looks like it's going to be a, a fairly straightforward opener and and uh and Venus just comes back at her and makes it a really competitive set which ends up being pretty nervy in the end Davenport just sealing it six four and then in the second set, it's it's Davenport that breaks at at 5-all and is serving for it at 6-5. And at that point, Venus Williams plays one of the all-time great games, I would say. She breaks Lindsay Davenport to love when Davenport is trying to serve out the match. And it is, it's is—it's four winners. It's four absolute screaming winners. And she continues that form into the tie-break. I think she wins eight points in a row, all told. And, and she wins that tie-break, seven points to four. And then the deciding set is just an absolute joy of of back-and-forth, sustained, top-level tennis. Just power hitting from the baseline. But a, but a lot more than that as well. There's glorious use of angles and working the court and cat and mouse going on is an absolute just joyous display of tennis. Lindsay Davenport holds a match point, a championship point at 6-5 in the decider. She doesn't take it and, or 5-4 in the decider rather. Um, and Venus Williams ends up clinching her third of what would be five Wimbledon titles, 9-7, uh, in that decider. And, uh, Gives us one of the all-time best winning celebrations ever. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, that's what happened in the match for anybody that missed it. But obviously, those are just the facts. That doesn't tell, that doesn't tell, doesn't tell the whole story. Even even part way, does it?
3: No. In, in terms of feel, watching the match, two things occurred to me as it was going along. One was the sound of the ball. When it's hit by Lindsay Davenport, and I, the only thing I, can, the only sound effect I can come up with verbally is "donk," <laughs> as a, you know she hits it, and it just feels like the thing is off. You know, it, it, it's an incredible sound, and and I I, I I when I watch her play at that level, I often think, well, how does it, how did anybody stop that? And then you watch this match, and you realize what Venus Williams is doing to to diffuse that to absorb the pace and redirect it off and on the run at full stretch and turn defence into attack. And I don't think the game had ever seen anything like that before. Because I mean there were there've been there have been wonderful athletes before like Steffi Graf. But yes, okay, if she's on the run on the forehand, she could hit a big forehand. But she'd be hitting defensive slices or at least floating the ball back to keep in rallies, showing amazing movement. Venus is He's just stretching out and turning defence into attack in a way that I don't think I've seen before. And that game you described, the four points in a row, the look on the face of Lindsay Davenport. <laughs> I don't think she'd ever faced anything like that before.
2: Yeah, she looked shell-shocked, didn't she? I, I mean, she you, very often, and we've seen it this fortnight, haven't we, people un, are unsuccessful when they try and serve out the match due to due to nerves and their arm feeling like lead and their feet... Not moving properly, feeling like they're stuck in the mud. But I'm not sure Davenport even had the chance to experience any of that because winners were sailing past her. You know, it was just she she wasn't in the game. She didn't have a chance to 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 really try and play for the title.
0: And and even on her championship point in the third set, Venus steps in and cracks uh, one of those sort of inside-out backhand winners. Just you know, clean past her. You know, she doesn't have a chance to even get a racket on the ball. And I think I think Davenport was eight times two points from winning, and obviously held held championship point once. You know, Venus played this match as you said, David, on the brink throughout. She was the one having to come from behind for most of the match, and yet she still managed to play the most brilliant, bold tennis. And that that idea of Venus changing the game and bringing something new to tennis is is what Venus always said she would do, and she was. I think 14 on the cover of Sports Illustrated, certainly in Sports Illustrated, and said, I'm going to change the game. And I just love that she was unap- unapologetic about what she knew she was capable of doing. And it's, it's matches like these where, where you see her do it.
2: She, uh, she, was, she was ranked outside the top 10 at this point, was, uh, was Venus Williams. What was she, the, the 13th seed? Um, at the tournament she hadn't won a slam in four years but Davenport herself I said it didn't tell the the full story that she was world number one she hadn't won a slam in in five years um, and extraordinarily at the ages of of 25 for Venus and 29 for Davenport pre-match this was being billed as a last chance saloon for both of them it, it, it really was I, I remember that I really do um and that's I mean I suppose that was fairly accurate in terms of, of Davenport, but in terms of Venus who's just turned forty and uh is is has every intention of coming back from this hiatus is just extraordinary.
3: Yeah, that That has moved on, hasn't it? The perception of what a tennis career span is has just totally changed and that's only in 15 years and i mean and you, you can look at the venus is a big part of the reason for that roger federer is serena is um and they have changed the perception of everybody else by doing it it's it's just it's just normal now for people to think that they there's no need to stop um but you're right i mean i i actually was not really it had passed me by that both players had gone that period of time without having won a a slam.
0: Davenport had got into a run of losing Grand Slam semi-finals. She lost six of them between 2001 and 2004. And then at the start of the 2005 season, she reached the Australian Open final (laughs) and then backed it up with this Wimbledon final. And what do we know about uh, 15-year-old Cecil Karantancheva? Karatancheva. Karatancheva. She was...
3: I she was it. the one re- who
0: beat Venus Williams at Roland Garros just before this Wimbledon.
2: She was kind of uh, obviously not in in skill terms or even in results terms, but she was kind of her the Coco Goff of of her time. She was the one that caused people to to debate and discuss the age eligibility rules because she broke onto the scene as a fourteen year old, and I think if memory serves, she complained about the age eligibility rules cuz she wasn't allowed to play as much as she had wanted to she ended up getting a drugs ban didn't she yeah um and i think is no longer on the scene but she was she was much hyped um though probably still not somebody that Venus should have been losing to in in the third round of the French open
3: she she was also Quite notorious for some rather indelicate remarks she made in press conferences ahead of uh, ahead of big matches. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> and she faced Wimbledon champion Maria Sharapova, I think, probably in two thousand and four. And she quite well. It was quite well known at the time that she she declared her intention pre-match to kick her ass off. That's not, what not I'm going to do. Just kick
2: her ass. Kick her ass. I'm going to off. kick her
3: ass off. I'm just telling you that's what I'm going to do. Those are the did, direct did quotes. You? No. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll, I'll see if I can find, this, find the result. Um, but uh, yeah, it was one of those where yeah, Catherine's right. There was a lot of hype, uh, and I, and she was adding to it because of things she was saying like that. Um, but yes, it didn't end up going very far
2: someone that did uh kick miria sharapova's ass off though (laughs) i've seen the opportunity for a segue and i'm taking it (laughs) was venus williams because sharapova was the defending champion at that wimbledon stop laughing at me david it was an excellent segue
3: (laughs) karatan is now 30 how has she become 30 once reached the quarterfinals of the uh the french open in 2005 Oh, so that, well, was, that was that was this year. That was
2: that. That's what we're talking about.
3: Okay. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah. Right, you fall down your Keratancheva rabbit hole, David. While well, I continue with my excellent segue, because Sorry. Sharapova was the defending champion in o five. We covered her o four win yesterday, of course, and Venus beat her handily in the semi finals, six one seven six competitive sec, uh, second set, but basically a, a handy victory over Sharapova and. Venus got into the final, therefore, without dropping a set, having not been talked about at all pre-tournament. It was it was a total surprise that she made it that far.
0: And there's also a very interesting thing which happens between that semi-final win over Sharapova and before her final against Davenport, which is that Venus pushes for equal prize money. She is in the offices of the all England club the night before her final against Davenport pushing for equal prize money you know it's easy I think it's I think we can lose sight maybe now that Venus has slightly retreated from press conferences a little bit in the last few years but she was a outspoken political voice at at this time particularly and yeah, she was lobbying for it. And a year later, she would write an article for The Times when there still wasn't equal prize money saying that Wimbledon sent me a message. I'm only a second-class champion. That was published in The Times. And then a year later, in 2007, there finally was equal prize money and Venus was the first woman to earn that equal prize money for winning the title. And I just think, I just think it's very symbolic of the of the player and person that Venus was at the time that she was she was managing all of this off court while also managing to sustain an incredibly high level on the court.
2: Yeah, I I I I read about that this morning as well, Matt, and I couldn't I, I was aware of that Grand Slam board meeting that had happened at that Wimbledon. I had no idea that it was on the eve of that final so Venus Williams who was on the players board at the time and had formed a a bit of an alliance or a lot of an alliance with the then um chief executive of the WTA Larry Scott he had taken up his post in in 2003 and and he had made a point of sitting down with a lot of the prominent players particularly Venus and and Serena Williams and talking to them about uh, the fight for equality. And, and he'd said to them, look, I'm up for it. I'm up for fighting for it. But I need your help on this. I need you to be with me. And, and Venus in particular had said, yep, I'm up for that. Um, And that required her to, to go into a room full of, well, basically men. I believe there was one other woman in the room, Jane uh, Brown Grimes, who was a, a non-voting member of the um. Uh, of the USTA at the time, but otherwise it was entirely men, this Grand Slam board. And she went into that meeting the night before her Wimbledon final. Um, And she asked everyone at the meeting to close their eyes and to try to feel the person next to them. She asked them to reach out and, and grab or touch the person next to them. And she said, can you tell if that person is a man or a woman? And she said, I wanted to illustrate that all of our hearts beat the same rhythm regardless of gender. Um, And she later um, added, reflecting on that, sometimes we lose track of and don't even realise our own bias, and our own prejudice, and we have to confront ourselves. And obviously, that's uh, a quote that feels particularly pertinent, just at the moment. Um, And Jane Brown Grimes, incidentally, has, uh, has, has talked about that that meeting after the event and just how unusual it was for a for a player to to come to one of those meetings she said you just don't often get a top player at those meetings um and she said Venus sort of kept them all waiting uh, in the in the hall before before coming in it was a real sort of grand entrance um and Larry Scott reflecting on that meeting as well said it was the one of the most stunning poignant powerful moments I've ever experienced in a business meeting and yet still Wimbledon didn't close di- didn't offer equal prize money they closed the gap a little um it, it, by this point the the gap in pay was less than 10 percent. but and but Venus and, and Larry Scott and everybody else involved said no that's that's not good enough um and as you say Matt it was in 2006 that that Venus wrote what ended up going viral this op-ed piece for for the times or the times of london as Americans call it it's just the times folks um and uh yeah a few excerpts from that the following year she said i feel so strongly that wimbledon's stance devalues the principle of meritocracy and diminishes the years of hard work that women on the tour have put into becoming professional tennis players. I believe that athletes, especially female athletes in the world's leading sport for women, should serve as role models. The message I like to convey to women and girls across the globe is that there is no glass ceiling. My fear is that Wimbledon is loudly and clearly sending the opposite message. I intend to do everything I can until Billie Jean's original dream of equality is made real. It's a shame that the name of the greatest tournament in tennis, an event that should be a positive symbol for the sport, is tarnished. And those are incredibly powerful words. They ended up being used in Parliament during uh, a a government debate um, on the topic, which received the backing first of Tessa Jowell, who's the Culture Secretary. She was particularly... um, Um, proactive uh, and um, important in in getting the London Olympic bid off the ground and bringing the Olympics to London. And and the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, got behind it as well. And then in 2007, finally, for the first time, Wimbledon awarded equal prize money to to, to women and it was Venus Williams lifting her fourth trophy that became the first woman to collect equal prize money. And that is so, so perfect.
3: Well, that's, you know, I read all of this at the time, obviously, but I, I haven't read it since, or at least recently, that was really something to listen to. Um, and, and I think, I think I, I tend to forget just how important she was in that process. And, yeah, I mean, Billie Jean King and many others have been responsible for taking on the fight for so many years, but Venus picked up the baton there, and when she was at her most relevant, her most powerful, um, and couldn't be ignored, and refused to be ignored, that was the beauty of it. She was just not having it, and uh, wow, that's great.
2: But she did it. You're absolutely right. She just wasn't having it. And she was stubborn and obstinate and, and knew she was right and refused to lay down. But she did it in the most calm, dignified, serene way. Um, and that is that's such an inspiring example, because, you know, I, I find myself too often getting angry and frustrated and just saying, oh, to hell with it all. If if people can't see sense, then why is it my responsibility to to try and persuade them. And it's, it's so frustrating. It's hard to, to keep that calmness and that dignity about you sometimes. And she has always been such a, an, an exemplary symbol of, of all of that. And it's, it's really quite inspiring.
0: I think, yeah, I think Venus and Billie Jean King and others who built the WTA tour and have all, have all played their part in, getting equal prize money at the slams, they're all kind of a living history lesson. You know, we will, we're will we not fully aware yet of, of their legacy probably still because they're still around and they're still playing and they're still influencing. And I think with time, we will really see just how important they all were. I think people are aware, obviously, of how important Billie Jean King is, but someone like Venus Williams, because... <laughs> You know, it was close. It was close to equal prize money, but it still wasn't equal. And she was the one who said, no, this isn't enough. We need to get this over the line. And I think getting the symbolism of having a completely equal prize money is, was, was the last step. And she was the one who was, pref- was prepared to put herself out there and go and do it. And that, that idea of, of her doing it sort of serenely and calmly, that is, that is what I associate with Venus Williams' on the court as well. And she's and she's had to be that person because she she was a barrier breaker and she was the first Williams at a time when the tennis world maybe wasn't quite sure whether it was ready for the Williams sisters. So she was the one who had to carry the load. She was the one who had to break through first. And to do that, she had to set an example. And she had to be calm about everything and kind of not show so much emotion. She she created the room for Serena to be Serena. But Venus Venus had to sort of cross that bridge first. And I think that's why her celebration at the end of this Wimbledon final in two thousand and five, where you suddenly all her internal emotions are externalized and, and you see the joy and you see how just how much it means. She allows herself for once to to sort of break out of her her stillness and her self-containment and and it all comes out and it's such a joy to watch.
2: Serena in in her prime is an extraordinary extraordinary thing. Um but just aesthetically on on a personal level I if I had to choose a player to watch in in their prime just for sort of aesthetically pleasing purposes Venus would be Right up there on my list of choices because there's just she's obviously this incredibly athletic figure and just the most wonderful symbol of strength. But the elegance of it all is is a sight to behold. It's I I I hated the the WTA Strong Is Beautiful campaign. I thought it was well intentioned and I saw where they were coming from and but it it just made me want to scream at the branding. What does it matter if you're beautiful? You know, it's mi- miss the point, which is that, you know, the world is judging women by their beauty and you're playing into that. But Venus Williams it is a symbol of strength being beautiful to me. I mean, she just completely embodies that. It is so beautiful to watch her in full flow. Her movement around the court is so fluid and yet so powerful at the same time. She's she's. I imagine,
3: Catherine, I imagine you can probably also relate to it from somebody who was a figure skater and loves figure skating. Uh, I almost look at some of the the end positions she's in when she's going out wide to a ball and think of a figure skater landing, you know, this ability to just on one leg be able to stop and go and maintain balance she'd have been
2: an extraordinary figure skater she would have been able to dig out landings even when her jumps were completely off axis that's actually i'm annoyed i didn't think of that analogy david because it's very very
1: good <laughs> millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
3: salads generally for most people are the easy button right Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it.
2: Hit winners, not just winners, but redirecting winners when completely off balance, when her weight is going backwards, is is something the game had never seen before. Particularly on the backhand side. I mean, her backhand was a different shot um, to any backhand that had been seen before. Had there been an open stance backhand in tennis, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there had. Obviously, Serena ended up coming along with the same backhand, but the way she could dig out clean winners from a completely off-balance position on that wing
3: was was extraordinary yeah I can't think of anything uh comparable really um and the uh you, you mentioned the the moment of victory and the reaction we've never seen anything quite like that either I, that I can think of not at, not at Wimbledon we've seen people fall to the ground and and be in ecstasy in that way but the only other person I c- that it reminds me of at all is Angelique Kerber winning her first Grand Slam at the Australian Open of just being delirious in happiness in joy to the point where Venus is just laughing hysterically at the whole situation of how deep she's had to dig how joyful and wonderful the moment is of victory um and ah it's just wonderful because
2: so often I think the the emotions in that moment of victory are really quite complicated aren't they I think relief is quite a complicating emotion in that in that moment it's completely understandable but it it kind of mixes and meddles with your other emotions to to taint them a little bit perhaps um but champions that had no expectation of winning before the tournament for whom it's all kind of a a bonus there is a purity often about their emotions in that moment of victory, which is just magnetic and I think that's exactly exactly what you see from Venus in that moment because yeah she might have she might have thought that she would win more Wimbledon's, but I don't think she thought she was going to win that
0: Wimbledon. I always think there's something special about whenever Venus wins because I just think of her as as the selfless, protective one, and when she gets her own moment to step into the light and she she just grabs it. I always think of that 2017 season when, when Serena was out on maternity leave. That was a year when Venus stepped up. It was almost like, okay, now this is this is my time now. And I don't know, there haven't been so many moments like that. Obviously, I love watching Serena play and having watched Serena win so much has been a captivating story, but there's always been... Just something something a bit different about when it's Venus. Certainly by this stage, I think when they were both breaking through at the same time. But now it had become clear that Serena was was the better one and was going to end up winning more. So for Venus to have these moments just, just were always extra special, I think.
2: And of course Lindsay Davenport played an enormous part in in that final and it, it you know, inevitably is one of one of the most heartbreaking losses of of her career especially given how how brilliantly she played and and i interviewed Lindsay a a few weeks ago we are going to run the the interview in full um in a couple of weeks because she's just an absolute joy isn't she she's such a normal relatable person but that just also happens to be a former world number one and multiple grand slam champion um, but she really does have a a, um, a very a magnetic personality, really. Someone you just sort of enjoy chatting to. And her her reflections on this 2005 final were were fascinating. Here she is.
1: You know, it was it was maybe the only, and I don't want to say it like that, but one of the few matches that I played so well and lost. <laughs> it was, you know, it was it it was amazing. It was heartbreaking, but it it. It it was how to play Venus on grass, and I could never solve that. I could beat her on the other surfaces, but playing her on grass was a totally different challenge. And um, I served for the match in the second set. I think she broke me at love or 15. I didn't get close. I had a breakup in the third, and that's where I kind of lost it. I had match point at um, 5-4 or 6-5 returning, but I was up a break earlier in the third, and that's kind of where things got away from me. Um, but you know, I really wanted to win a major, um, married and i lost in the finals earlier that year at the Australian open, just completely ran out of gas between the doubles final and the singles final, um, lost in three sets to Serena. I, that was, and then I had another chance at Wimbledon and wasn't able to do it. So that, that part was hard. I wanted to win one as like mrs leach and i you know that's what i was kind of most disappointed at i wasn't able to win one kind of with my husband there what was different
2: about venus on grass
1: that's you know i i felt like she played even a different style on grass and i always wondered why she didn't kind of incorporate that onto the hard courts certainly the faster hard courts i feel like she should have she should have an Australian Open title. She was way too good of a player, too good of a hardcore player to never win there. I think she probably could have won more US Opens. I always felt that though, she waited a little bit longer on hard courts. Like she wouldn't step into the court, take a ball and start moving forward. It was so tough to get a ball by her on grass because she would come take balls a little bit earlier. She wasn't afraid to come in. Her ball, she hits very flat. So it kind of skid off that grass that was still playing pretty fast back then. Um, And you're just kind of on your heels. And now you had someone coming forward, not the players had stopped really moving forward kind of around that time. But here came Venus who knew where to cover, did well covering the net. And so you didn't have a lot of breathing room. I still think it would, it was tough to pass her on hardcore. I don't think she took advantage of that kind of play and that kind of mindset being that aggressive, taking any ball a little bit earlier inside the baseline as well on hard courts as she did on grass. That '05 Wimbledon final was was
2: delayed, wasn't it? Because of the conclusion of the the men's semi final that had been uh, rained off the day before, so you had a a not before time for your your final. Is that right?
1: Is that right? Oh my gosh, that's good.
2: <laughs> be- I mean, you- um, I was going to ask, be- did that you bother you? That. But the fact that you don't remember it, maybe not. I mean, that that seems crazy to me that you'd have a not before time, and it would only happen to to women.
1: You know, I I don't remember that. I know in '99 um, we played Sunday and we had a noon start because the men, you know, there was so much rain. I remember that pretty clearly. Um, I don't remember '05. I have to say, I don't remember that at all. But it, it, I'm sure that is likely. I mean, we, you know, with no roofs back then and rain all the time, I feel like we were we had to be much more flexible than than the players have to be these days with more options at the majors with covered courts.
2: The last um, point I wanted to make about that match was I read a couple of quotes from you afterwards where you were talking about how during the match you were aware of how good it was, of how exhilarating it was, which is kind of amazing to me because so many players talk about, you know, being present and in the moment. It's like you were, <laughs> you had this perspective on it, like you were kind of outside of yourself, which is yeah. so interesting. Which
1: probably isn't the, what you're supposed to be <laughs> the grand slam final thinking about, wow, this is really good high level. Um, maybe just a glimpse to the demons in my own mind. What I have to go to, to focus... Um, no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, it was you You get a sense when you're playing certain matches, like, okay, this is special. Okay, this is this is pretty fun. It, it was, it, it was amazing for me to be able to, as you said, almost three hours to play at a pretty high level until the very end when I all of a sudden I was like, Oh, my gosh, I, I can't <laughs> anymore, because I'm my body is now breaking down. But Venus was you know, she was so good on that court and she was able to play at levels. You know, also Venus, you can never tell if she was down on herself or not. I mean, she had this ability to just kind of can keep her composure, keep fighting. She is... An amazing competitor. And I think that gets kind of underestimated with her because we don't see her give fist pumps. We don't see her kind of get either too excited or too down on herself. And so when you played her, you never really knew what was going on in her mind. She had such a great poker face out there. And you think, like, okay, I have the upper hand, and she'd come right back. And in that match, it was very evident because a lot of players would have shown some frustration, would have shown some emotion. And and not Venus, she she's able to keep it in until the very last point. And I always, I mean, it's impossible not to admire that about her.
2: So true, isn't it? I think it's really easy to to underestimate the competitor in Venus Williams, particularly back then. And I think I, I think, and I say that because um, it, it was her fortieth birthday last month, and there were a number of articles to to mark that. She she did one or two interviews, and she actually was asked on on CBS in the States um, around the time of her birthday what advice her 40-year-old self would have for her 20-year-old self. And Venus replied, I think my 20-year-old self would give some advice to me, actually. Honestly, she was killer. I watched some of those films and my face was unbelievable. You could see the killer instinct. So maybe my 20-year-old self needs to give me me some advice. But I'm grateful for mm. every single year.
3: Oh, that's wonderful. That's what a great find. Um and and actually I I've, I've been thinking about her career and and I think that that is quite significant in terms of what she didn't do in her career, which when I look at how good she was uh, and how long she's been playing, seven Grand Slam singles titles doesn't feel enough to me. It feels like she could have won more. Now, obviously, there are very many other great players, Serena being the, the obvious example of somebody who's won three times as many as she has, and there are other players that have justly won their own Grand Slams. Justine Ennan has won several, and... Capriati won a couple, etc. But I still watch the match that we've just seen, and and, th- and and think to myself, how come Venus Williams has not won more? Now, obviously, she's had Shogun Syndrome, which which has caused her a lot of problems in the latter part of her career. She's had other injuries, she's had other life events that have caused problems for her. Um, and I, the way I look at it, I do think that the the killer instinct that she describes there probably waned as the years went on that that she didn't have this desire just to win at all costs that, that if she didn't win that she wouldn't be happy or she wouldn't be feeling as though she's contributing to to what her legacy would be and to what her purpose would be and I think that the the 10 minutes of this show that you've described some of her other activity as a tennis player particularly the achievement she's had in regard to equal prize money that is her legacy, just as much as anything she's done on the court, um, and so I, I do think that that those are quite prescient um, words that she said there. But uh, and and but I also feel like could she have won more? Maybe, but who cares?
2: Well, I would have liked to see her win more, but yeah,
3: sure. <laughs> But I don't, I don't, I don't care. No, I it You're right. Back it doesn't. Her career.
2: If she were a, a nine-time Grand Slam champion, that wouldn't have a significant impact on her legacy or how she is looked back upon um, by the tennis world. And you're absolutely right. Nor should it. I would love her to to have a career slam. I'd love her to have a French and an Australian Open. Um, and it's funny, she says. She, again in in an article I think on the WTA website um um to mark her 40th birthday she was asked about goals you know and she said look in order to to keep playing should I keep playing because I love tennis but I have to have goals you know that is the nature of of sport you have to have something that you're striving for and she said of course my goals are to win an Australian and a French Open why wouldn't I why wouldn't I want that those are the the obvious targets for me now i think she is, would be the first to recognise that's now unlikely i think she's outside the world's top 60 at the moment who knows how this this period off will have affected her i mean it, it could be to her benefit but you know so many unknowns but but i love that i love that she's aware of that and setting 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 that as her goals i don't know just it just made me smile because i don't think she's i don't think she Think she's going to win those but I I like that she wants to
0: something else that made me smile was Davenport talking about how she knew it was a good match during the match because I think what this what this relived has shown me is that it doesn't really matter I mean there's that cliche in sport it doesn't matter how you win which I think maybe we all slightly disagree with because we've talked about how much we appreciate players winning with style or with joy. But ultimately, if you win, you're in the record books. But what I think I've learned is that it does matter how you lose. And I think Davenport in this match gave everything and was part of something really special with this match, which she can look back on. Okay, not as a win, but as a really important moment in her career and I think she probably elevated herself in lots of people's minds this day with this performance in the Wimbledon final even though she didn't win. And I think I think that's kind of what what sport should be about really. It's it's giving your all and you either win or you lose, but at least if if you can say that you have given your all and you're appreciative of the moment, there's some satisfaction to be to be taken from that as well. And it feels like Davenport's got that from, from this match.
2: She also had one of the all-time great altercations with an umpire she during that, that match.
0: Yes. Where is it? Uh, it's in the second set, I think.
2: Yes, second set. So it's all on a knife. I mean, it's on a knife edge throughout, but...
0: Yeah, and Venus hits a serve, which is is a good six inches out. Wide. Well nobody even
2: moves do they yeah. because they're just assuming the call will come and there's, if it's...
0: and there's no call and it's it's put down as an ace and um Davenport very calmly just goes up to the umpire Jerry Armstrong and, and says um, <laughs> if I did my job this poorly I wouldn't be able to be on the court <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is such a damning damning line but also just perfect the way she says it's so calm and then and then she says you must try harder <laughs> 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 and I, mean, I love that. And I mean she is right. I mean either the line judge or the umpire had to be calling that out. It was it was so far out. And and yet she didn't let it affect her tennis. because I think I think it's around the stage where she goes on to break Venus to serve for the match in the second set but yeah just a just a perfect example of how to deal with those you just how to put your point across in a way that doesn't make you come across badly at all and yet gets you know gets it known that you're not happy with what's gone on
2: I'm I'm going to go and practice my disappointed expression with the words you have to do better <laughs> <laughs>
3: You've got it down, Catherine. To be honest, um, uh, we were two years shy of Hawkeye being used on mm. the court at that point, and it's one of those where TV is using it yeah. as well. So by that point, we're getting the replay, but, but, the, but they
2: didn't bother with the replay. Oh, yeah, they did, but I mean, it was did, completely
3: irrelevant because the, the ball was the, they, they were struggling to get the ball and the line in the mm. same shot, it was so because it was, so was served
2: down the Down the tee, and there wasn't any spin on it or anything. There was no stage in the ball's flight at which it was ever going in. It wasn't a difficult call. It wasn't sort of spinning or looping or tricking the eye. It was always about a foot out.
3: (laughs) I have to say, I I think I think I would make mistakes like that if I was a lion umpire because I don't think I could concentrate at all on the job. I would
2: suggest you're ineligible for the job, then, David. (laughs)
3: No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get on. I would be like Lindsay said. I wouldn't be allowed on the course <laughs> because there's no chance that my mind would wouldn't wander and start thinking about something else I could be doing. Um.
0: <laughs> Especially that middle that middle line judge actually on a serve, who, whose only job it is is to is to call the serves down the tee. I think I, I can imagine that their mind would wander in and out quite a lot.
2: Yeah, at some lower budget tournaments, those centre mm. service line judge, judges have to do a shuffle over to the uh, to one of the sidelines, yeah. don't they? To to cover that during the points, which always feels pretty on the edge to me.
3: But you know, uh, would you uh, would you like my Cecil Karatansheva postscript?
2: Yes, sure. We've all pronounced that name completely differently um, amongst ourselves. I,
3: mean, I think it, I, th- I think it's Karatansheva. Um, so I've just done it wrong as well. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so she her comments about Sharapova came at Indian Wells, I think 2004. Um, she played her, won the first set. Sharapova beat her in three. Then they played at Wimbledon the year after, in 2005. And the headline of the article in the Guardian is Sharapova rewards insult with a good kicking. <laughs> it was six love six one. <gasps> Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and Kara Tantjeva is refusing to back down in the post-match. She says, I really don't regret saying those things. I meant what I said and I'm not sorry. Who knows? Maybe I'll say it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> she was 15. She's still playing today. She's uh, She tried to tried to qualify for Wimbledon and the Australian Open last year.
2: Right. As a 30-year-old or oh, 29-year-old then. Wow. 30-year-old, yeah. Right, well, that was your Lindsay Davenport Venus Williams podcast with a, a side helping of Cecil Karatancheva.
3: <laughs>
2: we didn't even um, get to talk
3: about uh, spotting Tim from the office in the crowd.
2: Yes, Martin Freeman inexplicably was on the on the front row, sat behind Lindsay Davenport's left shoulder.
3: <laughs> not that Catherine believed me when I saw it.
2: Well, but,
3: oh, you know, that oh argument no, almost can start this again.
2: <laughs> I did not believe you. I was just seeking further confirmation. Oh.
3: I could have kept my mouth shut as well. And Gavin
2: Rossdale was in Lindsay Davenport's box. So a real smattering of slightly random. Although he wasn't random. He was a total tennis groupie around that time, wasn't he? In fact, oh, lovely segue coming up. (laughs) Um, Wasn't he also in the box for the match that we're covering tomorrow?
0: He was. He was in Rocha Federer's box against Rafael Nadal. We're there, the 2008 men's final is coming up tomorrow
2: it's coming up tomorrow so clear your schedule i've just looked David? on i've just looked
0: on youtube and the full match on youtube is six hours and 13 minutes long
2: if they included the rain delays <laughs> i
0: i think there might be a bit of sort of you know a, you know ceremony before and after because i think the match we need one five of- hours something
2: we need one of those edits. I can't remember what match it was during the French show, there was, was an edit that cut out all ball bouncing, yeah, it was,
0: um, all it, walking it was, between. It was Chang Edberg. Oh. It, was in, it was in 12 parts.
2: <laughs> it was so great. I mean, it was literally just balls hitting rackets.
3: I calculate that I can watch that three and a half times <laughs> before mm-hmm. we record tomorrow. Mm-hmm.
2: Awesome. But you've got to allow time for several re-watches of the last two games of Even bit <laughs> Rafter in there as well because he's still oh, doing yeah, that folks. That. Yesterday yeah. he went off on a on an Agassi Becker tangent. What what were you watching?
3: Agassi Agassi Sampras 1993 five sets.
2: Oh. I had to tell him he was watching the wrong match. He's stuck in the 90s, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that was what we think is the greatest women's final of all time. I think. Most people would probably agree that where we're going tomorrow is the greatest men's final of all time. So things are, are kicking up a notch here on Wimbledon Relived. Um, I've noticed this morning on Gerald's Instagram that he's been been posing with some champagne. He's really getting big for his boots. I'm worried about it.
0: I've, I've, got, a, I've got an interesting uh, chat going with Gerald's account. So it's like we're talking to Gerald on there, <laughs> and um,
3: <laughs> I thought you were going to say Gerald's accountant.
0: <laughs> and um, I, I think it's probably Daryl who is uh, who is sending the messages. But he is said, Gerald
2: like telling you to go through his agent?
0: <laughs> but He just says you've no idea how hard it is to get these photo shoots done. <laughs> There's a lot of resistance on Gerald's part.
2: <laughs> well, we're very grateful. There is nothing I uh, I love more than uh, tennis. Plus animal content, uh, it's the best. So thank you, Gerald, for being our mascot. Thank you, David. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Lindsay Davenport, for your contribution to that episode. Thanks to all our guests. Tomorrow, it's two thousand and eight.
0: Federer and Nadal. We'll see you then.